I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. The history of Montreal's black community goes as far back as the very first French explorers to settle along the St. Lawrence River Valley. The community has dealt with slavery, oppression, injustice in both formal and informal racism. Yet, it is a community that has not only endured, it has thrived, despite significant challenges. It is also a community that was very much connected to the emerging civil rights movement in the United States, and it is a community that embraced its own struggle, though a struggle that was very much unique to the geopolitical situation of Quebec in the post-Second World War period. While the community was certainly active in fighting for equality, No single event highlighted or galvanized the community more than the Sir George Williams Affair in January of 1969, an event that set off one of the most important periods for Montreal's black community. This is Season 8, Episode 12, Montreal's Black Renaissance. Today's book recommendation is titled Unsettling the Great White North, Black Canadian History. It was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. And this is a very large volume of work whose editors slash authors are Funke Aladjebi and Michelle Johnson. This volume is a collection of leading scholarship in the field of black Canadian history, It highlights the diverse experiences of persons of African descent within the chronicles of Canada's past. Before we dive into the 1960s in Montreal, let's take a brief look at the history of Montreal's black population. The first recorded black visitor to the St. Lawrence River Valley was Matthew da Costa in 1606, who came over with Samuel de Champlain. There was then a series of less well-documented arrivals as the French and later the British brought over African slaves. 
Yet, serious black settlement of Montreal didn't really begin until the period of the American Revolution in the 1770s and 80s. The British offered freedom and land to any who would serve in the British ranks against the Americans, and thus the first wave of black settlers arrived in what would become Canada after the war. Now, many of them first settled in Nova Scotia, though a smaller number moved on to Montreal. More continued to come during the 19th century, especially after 1834, when the British made slavery illegal throughout the British Empire, thus making British North America a safe haven for many. The American Civil War once again saw a migration movement of black Americans to the Canadas, with many settling in the now rapidly growing city of Montreal. In the late 19th century, waves of immigrants began arriving from Britain's Caribbean colonies, many of whom came initially from Barbados and began working in the various fish plants along the St. Lawrence River. This was, in fact, one of the main immigrant groups to embrace French as their working and soon day-to-day language. During the 20th century, immigration into Montreal was stymied by the Canadian government who sought to prevent non-white immigration into Canada. Regardless, by this point, a sizable community now existed in Montreal. The largest concentration of Montreal's black residents was in the St. Antoine district near the railway stations and railway yards. This was because so many black Montrealers worked in the railway industry as porters, engineers, and conductors, while many women worked as domestic servants. Racism, prejudice, and bigotry were rife throughout the city. Most professional jobs were closed off to blacks. Many restaurants, hotels, and other businesses refused to serve them. McGill University wouldn't accept black students in law or medicine. For the black community, St. Antoine District was their geographical home, but numerous organizations also sprung up, acting as crucial social networks, but also becoming centers of activism. Churches were important in this. For instance, the Union Congregational Church, formed in 1907 initially for the black railway porters and their families. Other important organizations also sprang from this early 20th century period, such as the United Negro Improvement Association, as it was called then, and the Colored Women's Club, which was actually the first black women's organization in Canada. While the depression of the 1930s hit the black community exceedingly hard, seeing the community in fact decline in numbers, the Second World War and the booming 1950s that followed saw great economic benefits for the community as jobs were plenty and most people were now making more money than they ever had before. The community thus grew and began to spread to areas such Saint-Henri, Côte-Saint-Paul, Verdun, Ville-Hermade, and of course, Little Burgundy, the musical heartland of Canadian jazz. In fact, during this period of growth, while segregation was still informally practiced by various white communities, 
What was perhaps most interesting was that many black families lived side by side with Francophone families. This intermingling, which even led to some intermarriage, became more and more common between the two groups. Though it is important to point out that everyday racism and prejudice was still a reality for Montreal's black community in both English and French neighborhoods. Most black Montrealers were Afro-Caribbean, meaning them or their parents or grandparents were from Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, Haiti, and other former French and British colonies from the Caribbean. In the mid-1950s, the Canadian government's West Indian domestic scheme opened up immigration to Canada for single women if they agreed to work as domestic servants. During the 1960s, certain racial barriers to non-white immigration were removed, thus seeing a greater influx of black immigrants. As an example, in 1960, immigration from English-speaking Caribbean was 1% of all immigrants. In 1971, it was at 10%. This also meant that a growing number of black Montrealers had only recently arrived and brought with them new ideas and new energy when it came to black activism. This new energy, these new ideas, were key in what would become Montreal's black renaissance. By the end of the 1960s, the black population of Montreal numbered around 15,000 people. Now, throughout the 1950s and 1960s, many black Montrealers were well aware, of course, of the growing civil rights movement in the United States. In fact, Montreal boasted several civil rights organizations of its own, the most prominent one being the NCA, which in the mid-1960s founded its own journal, Expression. There was already a long history of black activism in Montreal. While it was not media-grabbing, nor responded to with the same violence as in the United States, it was nonetheless a movement that had its roots in a community that had been in Montreal for decades fighting for racial justice. One of the interesting aspects of Montreal's civil rights efforts was that for many young Afro-Caribbean activists, especially those who had recently arrived, it was rooted in concepts of decolonization and anti-colonialism. This was an interesting aspect. As anti-colonial rhetoric, i.e. the black community shedding the trappings of white colonialism, clashed in many ways ideologically and philosophically with some of the more established groups and with some of the more established leaders within Montreal's older black community. One of the key groups embracing this anti-colonial perspective, which formed around the mid-1960s, was the Caribbean Conference Committee on West Indian Affairs. This group embraced the rhetoric of decolonization to address inequality, racism, and politics within Montreal. This group became a locust of black intelligentsia in the city, holding conferences, talks, and workshops. 
1965, it held its first conference, and its keynote speaker was Barbadian novelist and poet George Lamming. Lamming went on to have an incredible career of writing numerous books, essays, poetry, and held several key academic positions, including at places like Duke, Cornell, and Brown. The next year, the group brought in Trinidadian activist, intellectual, and writer C.L.R. James. Now, the committee itself did not last long. It was disbanded before the end of the 1960s. But it played a crucial role in helping to put Montreal on the intellectual map, a city where ongoing discussions about racism and economic inequality were taking place. People were paying attention. It's important to note that while Montreal was establishing itself as an intellectual center for the black diaspora, the civil rights movement and the black power movement were gaining momentum and global recognition in the United States. And of course, black Montreal was paying attention. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April 1968, thousands of Montrealers took to the streets in protest, solidarity, and mourning. Much like in the U.S., black leaders in Montreal were appalled by King's murder and saw it as a sign that so much more still needed to be done to elevate the black community. And in many ways, the tragic assassination further focused activist efforts within Montreal. One of the most prominent events to occur in the aftermath of the death of Dr. King was the Congress of Black Writers in October of 1968. The McGill Daily called it the largest black power conference ever held outside the United States. One of the chairs of the Congress was, in fact, Rosie Douglas, who had been involved with the Caribbean Conference Committee. The Congress brought numerous intellectuals and activists to Montreal, such as Michael X, who was the leader of the black Muslims in England, Walter Rodney, James Foreman, it saw the return of C.L.R. James, and Halifax-based activist Rocky Jones. However, the biggest event was the appearance of Stokely Carmichael, at the time one of the world's most well-known black power activists. His speech was not without controversy, though, and he said, and I quote, I don't think that white Canadians would say that they stole Canada from the Indians. They said they took it, and they did. Well then, it's clear that we can't work for these lands. We can't beg for them, so we must take them. Then it's clear that we must take them through revolutionary violence. It's also interesting to note the significant attendance of white Montrealers at the Congress. In particular, was one Gerald Godin, a radical Quebecois poet and author. And he came out of the Congress arguing that black Canadians and Francophone Quebecers shared many similarities in the way they had been oppressed by white English Canada. He was particularly impressed by Rocky Jones, who himself called for an alliance between black Canadians, French Quebecers, and First Nations in opposing discrimination and injustice. 
Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But the fact is, we rely on advertisement for the financial support needed to continue to make this show. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement-free. If you go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search CCH, you can access all of our episodes from seasons seven to eight for free and most of the episodes from the previous seasons. It's really easy. All you do is go on and you donate a dollar or two dollars to the podcast and that's that. It's easy, safe, and it's a great way to get this content without the ads. The thing is, Patreon even has an app so you can download it to your phone and simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast listening apps. And there is CCH Episodes right at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. While the Congress of Black Writers was a massive success, no single event galvanized Montreal's black community like that of the Sir George Williams Affair. The origins of this event begin at the end of the 1967-68 school year at Sir George Williams University. If you're wondering where that university is today, it merged with Loyola to form Concordia. You see, a group of Afro-Caribbean students accused a biology professor of racial discrimination in his grading, along with general grading incompetence. A heated controversy ensued, and by January of 1969, the students were extremely frustrated that the university was not adequately addressing their concerns. Thus, they and others organized a sit-in. Approximately 200 students, the majority of whom were white, occupied the university's computer center on the ninth floor of the hall building. This went on for nearly two weeks, when... On the 14th day, the students barricaded themselves in the room in response to growing pressure from university officials and police. Now, while police were there right from the start, in response to that barricade, the riot squad was called in. In reaction to the arrival of the riot squad, the students began to toss paper and computer punch cards out the windows. The riot squad then broke down the doors and charged in, a melee ensued, a fire broke out, and extensive damage occurred. 97 protesters were arrested, and about $2 million worth of damage was inflicted on the computer lab. 
Criminal charges were, in fact, laid against many of the protesters, including the aforementioned Rosie Douglas, who would actually go on to serve jail time for their perceived role as one of the ringleaders. The event was not only on the front page of every newspaper in Canada, but it resonated globally, in particular in the Caribbean. At the University of West Indies in Barbados, for instance, students engaged in sympathetic marches. And when the Canadian Governor General, Daniel Roland Michener, toured the Caribbean on a goodwill tour, he was blocked by students from entering the University of West Indies Trinidad campus. In Montreal, the event caused a fair amount of tension and highlighted a lot of the existing racial tension of the day. While many young white and black students sympathized with the protesters, at the scene itself, there were groups of white people yelling derogatory phrases while the fire raged. They were using the N-word aggressively, calling for the police to let the protesters burn. They used the N-word in place of protesters. As well, Black students were held separately from white students by the Montreal police, a very symbolic reaffirmation of the discrimination many black students faced by police. The protesters found support from different groups, a small amount of faculty, a number of francophone groups, as well as various student organizations across the country. Though oddly, most Anglophone student organizations at the university and elsewhere in the city did not support the protest. Perhaps most powerfully, the Sir George Williams affair brought together the many different groups within Montreal's black community. And for many, whether young or old, the affair highlighted the racism that very much existed in Montreal at the time. It highlighted the struggle. The affair galvanized the black community into greater action. And some prominent historians claim this was the spark that truly set off Montreal's black renaissance. In the aftermath of the affair, for instance, a number of new organizations were formed. One was the Caribbean International Service Bureau, formed by Elfie Roberts, which focused on supporting women in domestic servant jobs. This organization offered a daycare, organized conferences, and even published literature in local journals and newspapers. Weekly meetings within the black community became more and more frequent, culminating in what came to be known as the Thursday Night Rally. The rally, in fact, started as a forum to provide information about the arrested students, but soon it became a space for the community to discuss race and racism. The rally included guest speakers. The rally held book clubs and even began showing films. A community television program called Black is Television emerged during this period, as did the Black Voice, a newspaper and journal focused on the black community and black issues within the city. A whole host of other organizations sprung up in the aftermath of the affair. This included the Black Coalition of Quebec and the Black Board of Educators. There were numerous other events organized in this period, such as the Congress of Black Women, as well as a number of youth workshops. 
there was even a black youth television initiative formed. One of the most important legacies of the affair was the creation of the newspaper Uhuru, which is Swahili for freedom. And this became the dominant voice for Montreal's black renaissance into the 1970s. At its peak, its circulation numbered at 3,000. Stokely Carmichael even wrote the editors, thanking them for their work. The end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s saw a plethora of black literature and black media being produced in Montreal. As well, numerous black leaders began to more actively reach out to other groups to find allies in the struggle. In particular, a number of leaders called for greater engagement with indigenous groups, seeing a common cause in the fight against oppression and racism. Many articles in Uhuru called for such an alliance, seeing the red power movement in the United States as a natural ally of the black power movement globally. The one thing that complicated issues for the black community in Montreal, and perhaps was the one thing that made the Montreal black renaissance so unique within the broader black power movement, was that many white French Canadians in Montreal saw themselves as oppressed by the colonizer, i.e. English Canada. And they were using much of the same language that black activists were using. This posed a complicated relationship between Francophone and black Montrealers, as many black leaders, writers, activists refused to accept the Francophone position of oppressed because, of course, the Francophone population was largely white. Black people had been enslaved by French colonists from the earliest days of colonization and had suffered oppression and discrimination under the French regime and dealt with racism on a daily basis within French-speaking sections of Montreal. Thus, for many, white Francophones and white Anglophones were members of the same oppressing group. It was not as if the two groups couldn't find a mutual understanding. Uhuru, for instance, in a number of articles, recognized that blacks and francophones were oppressed by the same forces in the province. But it also stated unequivocally that blacks were the object of discrimination from both English and French communities. Further complicating matters was the issue of Quebec sovereignty. The 1970 provincial election saw the Parti Québécois run for the first time, a provincial party dedicated to Quebec separatism. The black community was divided over this issue. Some saw the Quebec separatist struggle as parallel to the black struggle, while others saw Quebec separatism as irrelevant to the black community because they would have to fight for equality in a separate white Quebec as well. One interesting aspect of the increased activism of the late 60s and early 70s is that much of the rhetoric implicitly and explicitly excluded women. Many leaders within the black community spoke of men reclaiming space for blacks, while black women were often expected to assume a passive role. It's not that women had not been an important part of the struggle. Women were active in almost every group and every event that occurred. Yet, for many male leaders, 
women were seen primarily as the reproductive force of the black nation. Their role was to propagate the race. This contradiction, male activists fighting against oppression, being blind to their own oppression of women, was not unique to the black power movement. It was a common contradiction within many emerging activist circles of the time. One of the loudest voices highlighting this contradiction was Anne Cools, who was a member of the Caribbean Conference Committee and participated in the Sir George Williams affair. In fact, she refused to plead guilty and ended up serving two months in jail. Anne worked tirelessly as an advocate for women and would go on to become a Canadian senator in 1984. Thus, the Sir George Williams affair became a catalyst for a flurry of activity and a defining moment that focused the black community in Montreal in a way previously unseen. While the community certainly had a long history of activism and resistance to oppression, the late 1960s and the early 1970s witnessed an incredible coalescence of the community. Montreal became an intellectual and activist center for the black power movement in North America. While our understanding of black power and black activism often remains focused on events and people and groups in the United States, Montreal was very much connected and a part of the broader struggle for racial equality. Yet, at the same time, it had its own unique characteristics rooted in the long history of Francophone-Anglophone tension and the emerging Quebec separatist movement coming out of the 1960s, what's often referred to as the Quiet Revolution. Montreal's black community today numbers just above 11% of Montreal's total population. And while the locust of Canada's black community has shifted a bit to Toronto, Montreal continues to be an important center in the ongoing struggle for racial justice, equality, and recognition of a long complicated and dynamic history of resistance and resilience and the community makes up an important part of the broader Canadian cultural mosaic. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. It's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Friends.